so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Considering the status of the unborn in the political arena can be somewhat discouraging, but Senator James Lankford asserts the importance of pushing for pro-life policy. Let's listen as he discusses human dignity in the political realm at Evangelicals for Life in Washington, D.C. My name is James Lankford, and I'm very glad I didn't wear that same tie today, uh, walking out and seeing that picture up there. United States Senator from Oklahoma, and it is an absolute joy to be around this group. You have come a long way. Uh, You're in a lot of conversation. It's already been a long afternoon for you. Let me give you a little bit of context just in my story, and then I want to be able to walk through a couple of things just to be able to talk about not just what's happening in Washington, but nationally in in this conversation about life and where we're going. My wife and I have been married 25 years. We have two daughters. They're both seniors, a senior in high school and a senior in college. And the fun story for us is they're graduating the same day, a thousand miles apart. So we're still working on that and uh, trying to figure out exactly how to be able to do that. I come to Congress, I've been in Congress for seven years, four years in the House of Representatives, three years in the United States Senate, but it's a very odd journey for me. I was 22 years in youth ministry before that, and I've yet to bump into anyone and it says, if you ever want to be in the Senate, go be a youth pastor first. (laughs) No one saw that as a route. No one saw that as a plan. It wasn't like some devious plan. Ooh, I knew you always wanted to be in politics because you were a youth pastor. Okay, no one ever thought that. In fact, the most miraculous part is not that I'm a senator now, it's that when I go and speak, pastors listen to me now, and that's different than what it used to be as a former youth pastor. So it, it, it's, it, it's a little different world for me. But the task is remarkably the same. We're dealing with cultural issues. Uh, I, um, I was the director of the False Creek Youth Camp, uh, which is the largest youth camp in America. It's in southern Oklahoma. We have about five to 7,000 students a week there. Uh, we have 51,000 students a summer, so it's a very unique place. So if you can imagine 400 acres in Oklahoma heat with 6,000 teenagers on it, it's like a human anthill. Uh, and it's a really remarkable place, though. Uh, it was not unusual for us to see 2,000 students a summer to come to know Christ there. For anyone that's in ministry, I don't know of any other place that you would want to be other than right there watching life transformation in so many families from so many places to be able to go through it. But God completely interrupted our life in late 2008, 2009, and called my wife and I to run for Congress. And it's a long story. Maybe we can talk about it some other moment. But he made it clear, and he made it obvious, and he repeated it over and over mercifully. Uh, Because the first time he said it, I just smiled and said, that's not possible. And so he kept repeating over and over, come follow me. And I had the decision at that point whether I was going to follow him or not, because I'm convinced that God does not call us to an occupation. He calls us to himself. And that's the decision we have to make first is not what title I have. It's what person I will follow. And that 
was driven home to me at that point to try to determine what do we do from here. This issue of life, though, is a national conversation. It was a passion for me both in youth ministry and as an individual, uh, as a father of two daughters, and to be able to watch that miraculous event and to be able to know that from my own daughters as well. All of you have a very similar story to that as well. But it's not just a cultural issue for me and something very personal for me. Quite frankly, it's something significant for all of our culture. We just lose track of it. And for those of us that are in ministry, we occasionally get the lens a biblical worldview on, and clearly life is a passion of God as the author and creator of life. He is the one who knits us together. He is the designer of our life. We get that, but we wonder if people that don't have a biblical context get that. Well, it's not hard to be able to look outside into our culture and say, this is more of a culture of life than we can imagine. Last week when I was in Oklahoma, I stopped by one of our medical research centers. It's a place to do extensive research on cancer, on MS, on Alzheimer's. Uh, I stopped in one of the labs and visited with uh, the uh, research scientists there, and they're doing experiments on zebrafish. You know, those tiny little things that look like minnows uh, that you can buy 50 of them in the store and put in your tank, which I don't know why you would do because the fish smell horrible in your home, but that's a whole different issue. They take zebrafish, and then they uh, take the eggs. As they're tracking the eggs of the zebrafish, they separate them all out, and they begin injecting in the very beginning of the development of the zebrafish a human gene that has an abnormality in it that they believe causes cancer. And then they'll watch the progression of the zebrafish over the next few days because they accelerate very quickly. And within two or three days, they can see an abnormality. It may be uh, something in their circulatory system. and It may be they don't have eyes, whatever it may be. They'll see some abnormality that comes up and they'll go, okay, the gene has taken hold. They've had an abnormality. Then they start testing different drugs on it to see if they can cure it, basically. And they can do all of that in about a 10-day period with one zebrafish. That's the life expectancy as they're walking through the process. It's been millions of dollars in extensive research, and they're tracking some pretty remarkable work on cancer studies for people using zebrafish. And as I walk away from that, I'm not only amazed at the research that they're doing, I'm also amazed at the creativity and the work that we have going on all around the country on protecting human life. Somehow we get the perspective that those things are different But there is a real interest in our culture to say, how do we celebrate life and how do we acknowledge that and how do we guard it? We see it in cultural events at times. Uh, J.R. Harris, some of y'all may be uh, Cleveland Cavaliers uh, fans in in the NBA. He's a guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Last January, a, a year ago now, he and his wife had little Dakota, and I do mean little. She was a pound. She was very early. But she left the hospital five months later at seven pounds, five ounces, and is now a year old. All of the Cleveland community, in fact, it became a national conversation because it's a big-time big NBA player, started having conversations about very early births and viability. And it was interesting, a CNN article during that same time period said that a child born at about 23 weeks has a 50 to 60% chance of survival. CNN is talking about that. And talking about how different that may be. We lose track that this is not new technology either. In 1995, Roberto Rodriguez underwent an, an, an incredible surgery where at 20 weeks old, they found an abnormality in his lungs, did surgery in utero, fixed the abnormality. 13 weeks later, he was delivered, and he's now 22 years old. We lose track of this and realize our society is very passionate in pursuing how do we protect life as a culture. What we're missing out on is 
where do we find the common ground issues? Where do we get into those conversations? So where I try to push people, and uh, I make it no secret in my life that I'm very passionate about life, and I believe it begins at conception. And I say, I, I actually believe that's a person when they have DNA that's different than the mom or different than the dad. That DNA is different. That's not the same DNA. Every bit of your cells and you all have the same DNA. But that's different. What makes that different? It's a different person. All the DNA in that growing child in the womb is no different than what they'll have when they're three years old and playing in the backyard, throwing sticks at their sister. There's no difference. Just time. That's it. So as I, as I lay that out in conversations with people, I'll typically start with people that have questions about life with one simple question. Where is your boundary with where life begins? Where is that for you? Because for most people, they've never considered it. They've honestly just said, I'm pro-choice or pro-life, and they just flippantly moved on from there, and they've never thought the rest. And it's interesting for me when I get a chance to interact with people to say they're pro-choice. I say, okay, that's interesting. Where is your boundary for where life begins? Is it after preschool. And I typically will get a scowl and then I'll say, okay, probably not that. Is it when they're two? Because those are difficult days. And they'll typically say to me at birth, I'll say, great, we can talk about that. What if there is a botched abortion, which happens at times, and instead of the child being killed in the womb during the abortion, the doctor actually induces delivery and you have a living child on the table, a viable, late-term, living child on the table. Now what? Do you know what the actual medical practice is for that within an abortion clinic? The actual practice, when that does occur, rare as it may be, when that does occur is everyone in the operating room just backs away from the child, and they allow the child to die of exposure on the table. Because to physically engage with that child and to take its life now would be a criminal offense. They've been fully delivered. That's why Kermit Gosnell, the abortion doctor from, uh, from Philadelphia, is in prison right now because he was fully delivering children and then killing them rather than killing them in the womb. So I'll ask people, is it at delivery? Is that a child? Even if it were delivered during the process of an abortion. And it's been interesting to see people just kind of spin the wheels and to think about, what, what do I think about that? I've asked people, what, what, what do you think about something like a late-term abortion? Now, for many people, they've never actually considered it. But at 20 weeks, a child can feel pain. They have a fully developed nervous system, fully developed heart, and brain is operating, and 10 fingers, 10 toes. They're sucking their thumb. They're yawning. They're stretching. They're making faces. They're beginning to make mom miserable about that time. That's all happening in about five months of pregnancy. At that point, is that child alive? And for some people, they'll say, no, they're not alive in, until they're born. And I can say, well, we might be out of the mainstream on that. Now, in America, I know that's not an ongoing conversation, but 191 countries in the world will not allow late-term abortions after 20 weeks. 191. There are only seven countries in the world that will allow abortions at five months, and we're one of those. In fact, there are only four countries in the world that will allow elective abortions at 25 weeks. We're one of those four. Want to take a guess on the other three? The four nations that allow elective abortions at 25 weeks or later 
are China, North Korea, Vietnam, and the United States. What an elite group we're in. The worst human rights violators in the world. We're in that group. And my challenge to people is, where does life begin? Because in China, North Korea, and Vietnam, they say there are no boundaries. But in 191 other countries, they have at least said when a child is viable, that should be a child, not just tissue. In fact, interestingly enough, in 1973, the Supreme Court struggled with this exact same issue, and they came up with the definition of, in Roe v. Wade, when a child is viable, and they left that undefined, then that child can be protected by the state. So my question to people is, when a child could be delivered and survive, and even going back to CNN, 50 to 60% of those children at that age, even at 23 weeks of gestation, can and do survive and are healthy, is that child alive? What does life mean? You see, I've found the more that I have honest dialogue with people and, don't, and get past pro-choice, pro-life, and actually begin to press on them and to say, I want you to think about this. What does this really mean? The more we get into honest dialogue, as painful as this may seem, at times I'll have people talk about late-term abortions and they don't want to discuss it, and I'll say, are you interested to know on how it happens? Because a late-term abortion can't be done the same way other abortions can. In a late-term abortion, the abortionist has to actually reach in with a tool and actually physically pull the child's arms and legs off and allow it to bleed to death in the womb and then deliver it piece by piece because it's too big and too well-developed to just bring out the other ways. Are we okay with that? I don't want to be hateful to people. And I don't want to be grotesque, honestly. But I do think many people have flippantly chosen words like pro-life and pro-choice and have never really thought about the next step. And there is something valuable with having honest, caring dialogue. Where's your boundary? Where do you define life? Where does that begin? I also have had the opportunity to be able to just ask people, what about someone else who disagrees with you? Should they be compelled to have your exact same point of view? Most of the time, people will say, no, you shouldn't have to think like me. And I will go, well, let me talk to you a little bit about conscience protections. Because in the United States, supposedly, we have freedom of conscience, but it doesn't actually exist. Because in the United States, there are nurses that have been fired, though when they were hired, they were told they would never have to do an abortion but when they ran short of staff, they moved the nurse over to that area and forced her to be a part of taking the life of a child when her passion was protecting life. And she was forced into a position to say, you'll have to lose your job if you don't actually participate in this taking of a life. Is that okay? I could say it simpler. I could say, are you willing to be able to take a vegan that works in the grocery store and compel them to work in the butcher shop? Most people would say, I would never, ever do that. Would you take someone who has a personal moral objection to the death penalty and compel them to be the physician that does the lethal injection in the prison? Most people would say no. Most people might even say no if I said, as horrific as it is, 
to say we would rightfully be furious to hear about a man who fired a woman at work because she didn't receive his advances. But what if that same man threatened that same woman and said, I'll fire you if you don't have my same moral convictions? Is that okay? I, don't, I would hope we wouldn't say she could just quit and get a different job in either situation. I would hope that we would stand up and say, in America, we should be able to have different points of view and to be able to find a way to be able to have real dialogue and conversation. See, there is something very powerful about this simple act of just conversation when you're right. They're arguing about esoteric issues, about a, a, a woman's right or freedom of choice and things, and we're, on, and we're arguing about a child. You can talk about every euphemism you want. I want to talk about the child, the one with 10 fingers and 10 toes that can't speak yet, but is sucking their thumb and wondering what life is going to be. That's what I want to talk about. Now, as we walk through this in a cultural conversation, we also know that in every group of people that we talk to, we're all going to also going to talk to people that have probably experienced abortion personally. Either the person that paid for it, participated in it, she was there, or he was the product. We're going to be in those conversations. And while we're talking to people about where is your line, we should also share that some people are going to push back hard on us because they do not want to consider that line because it is too painful. Some of you volunteer in uh, Women's Resource Centers, Crisis Pregnancy Centers, places to be able to help people walk through the most difficult season of their life. Good for you. Thanks for helping and walking people through that incredibly difficult season. You have been there to be able to see people struggle through those days and to talk about previous abortions and try to process it now. You have heard them tell the stories about sitting at the food court at the mall and watching a three-year-old laugh and play and wonder if their child would have sounded just like that, but they'll never know. You've walked them through some of that stuff. We should walk through this as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ and of believers that there is a God who loves us that we also follow the practice of loving others. I've experienced great grace in my life, and so have you. And it's a good gift when we pour that over other people and be able to walk them through incredibly difficult days because it is a very, very difficult topic. But our culture is struggling in this, and we should lean into that, not lean away from it. Because of all things that God would be excited about, you would think he would be excited about the prize that he created on the final day of, of creation, the climax of creation, human life. And when we engage with what he's passionate about, I think it's a pretty good idea. So how does this really affect us? And what does this really matter in our culture? Even from not just from a biblical concept, a culture that will not honor life, will not honor authority, truth, or each other. Just won't. Because life is invaluable, others are invaluable as well. We watch that in families, we watch that economically, we watch that in education, we watch that in a prison culture. Wherever you want to be able to watch that, you can watch that repeated over and over again. It's fascinating to me 
that the end of the Old Testament ends with Malachi, which I have my old friend calls Malachi, ends with Malachi, and in chapter 4, verse 6, God is saying to them, I will send the Elijah, and they will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, and the children to their fathers. And then you begin out the New Testament with this really crazy guy, John the Southern Baptist. And he, he has a unique calling that we lose track of. At times we think he was a forerunner of Jesus and he was all those things. But do you remember what his dad heard about him before he ever started? The prophecy about John the Baptist was he will turn the hearts of their fathers back to their children. Now, I'm always amazed by that because that was the prophecy about him, but we don't get near enough stories about John, probably because most of them would have been weird based on how he dressed and what he ate. But his ministry, which we see as baptism, his ministry was to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. It's a pretty powerful ministry still, wouldn't you say? What would happen if we could help turn the fathers' hearts back to their children? that we can engage with dads, that we can engage with teenage guys, that we can engage with young adult men, and to say, that's not an it to go take care of, that's a child. And what are you going to do about it? And how are you going to take responsibility? And you've missed out that this wasn't just a moment, this was the beginning of something uniquely different for both for you and this child that's coming. How could we walk with those dads? Because we spend a lot of time as churches talking about how we're going to walk with moms. There is a real calling in Scripture to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. You want to turn culture? Get boys to grow up to be men and to re-engage in culture again because they're disengaging all over our society. What can we do to do that? I always, when I walk through a store and I see a dad that's by himself and he has a little one with me, I I honestly, this just being a dad of two daughters, when I walk through the store, I will often want to just go up to him and say, way to go, and try to give him a high five. My daughters have told me that's really creepy and don't do that. But every time I see a dad going through the store with his small child, I think how rare that is now. What can we do to be able to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children? How can we re-engage those families? Because until those families are re-engaged, we're not going to turn culture around as a whole. And there is no greater messenger of that than the church. So let me just bounce a couple of ideas off of you. There's a focus among some to say government is getting too big and too complicated and too expensive. But what really what's happening is families are collapsing. And as families are collapsing, government is trying to rise to fill the gaps that are left with collapsing families. More penitentiaries, pouring more money into education in more ways, more assistance for moms that are left out there exposed with their children, and government continues to rise with programs. So we at times will try to jump on the stack of government and push it down. Really what we need to do is jump underneath families and push them up. Because this doesn't change until we lift up some families. The Brookings Institute, not known to be a right-leaning group, the Brookings Institute has identified three areas that they've come back year after year after year for years now. 
and said, if you're going to solve poverty in our community, what are the dynamics? Basically, they're studying kids that were born in poverty that didn't stay in poverty. What was different about them? The same three things they've identified over and over again. They waited until marriage to have children. They finished high school, and they have a job of any type. Those three things. Now, if you take away any one of those things, obviously they can still rise, but it gets harder. But it's somewhere around 97% of the kids that are born in poverty get out of poverty if they wait until marriage to have children, graduate high school, and get a job of any type. Hmm. I wonder if there's something that we can do to be able to help in that. How can we bless culture and engage in a way that revolutionizes communities to reinforce to people that children are not disposable, that they're not inconvenient, that they're a part of a growing family that can be part of the commitment that we can do, that they're born in the image of God and they have value and worth. And even though when they're teenagers, they dye their hair a weird color and get a tattoo, they're loved by God and they're to be loved by us. And that's best displayed in the church. Your church can find foster families. Our state in Oklahoma discovered the number of foster children in the state would go to zero if every church had one foster family in it. I don't know what it is in your state. You might want to do the math on that. If just every church had one foster family, we would have zero foster kids available in the community. Maybe people in your church that'd be very interested in adopting. They have no idea how. I know some churches that have families that have adopted before, that they help lead small groups a couple of times a year just for parents that are interested in it, knowing it may be years before they do it, but they literally don't know how to do it. And you know the legal consequences of that decision of adopting and the cost of it. What if your church were to come alongside them in those families? There's some churches that are involved in ways to be able to help assist in what our our state does called a 111 project, where we have foster families that have a need, whether it be a car seat or whatever it may be. We find out about it right away, pass the word immediately, and those those church members immediately find out we've got a foster parent in our church. They've got a foster child coming over in three hours, and oh, by the way, it's a new age, and they need a different car seat. And somebody that can't receive a foster child just knows they're going to jump in and help, and they stop by and get them a car seat and they're on their way. There are just lots of things that we can do as a church. If only we were to strategically think about not only are we doing to protect life, but to reinforce the value of life. There may be an attorney in in your church community that they could help develop what are the processes that are needed in your state to be able to fix the very broken adoption system. And they could help form some ideas that would revolutionize adoption in your state. There's no question there's some people in your church that would love to volunteer in crisis pregnancy centers and women's resource centers. If only we were to mobilize them. There's some practical things that we can do. Speak on it, preach on it, reinforce it, model it. But of all places in the community, the church should lead in this area. If God is the author of life, we should probably remind people that it's valuable and to continue to reinforce that. But let me give you one caveat. Our community has been good at loving people deeply, but occasionally we haven't articulated it in quite the best way. 
This past Monday was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Remembrance Day. 50 years ago this year, this April, he was assassinated. 50 years ago. But his words still ring incredibly true. One of the statements that he made over and over again was, darkness does not drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Love is the only power that can transform an enemy into a friend. And in our work for life, we should remember the women that have experienced abortion are not our enemy. There are people in deep need of compassion. The abortion doctor is not our enemy. We're going to win them over, not with our hatred, but with our love and affection. We can stand for the right things. We can express compassion. We can be consistent and persistent, but we love at all times. And we demonstrate that value. I'm amazed at uh, some verses that I cling back to. Daniel, when he was uh, confronting Nebuchadnezzar at one point, you remember the great story about Nebuchadnezzar having the dream and Daniel coming and confronting him and saying, yeah, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go crazy and go live outdoors for years, and it's going to go really bad. Well done, king. How'd you like to deliver that news to the king? Well, it happens. He goes crazy, and then God restores his mind. And do you remember what it says? Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do we believe that or not? Because at times we think our hatred and our strength and our volume will win them over. Nebuchadnezzar reminded us, God is capable of humbling the proud, and he's just, and his ways are right. Let's go live it. People in our community need it. Years ago in youth ministry, I had one of, my, uh, one of the workers and one of the parents at my uh, church that I asked to be a Sunday school teacher. And she said, no, I can't teach Sunday school. She's an awesome lady. I can't teach Sunday school. I can't teach Sunday school. And I pounded on her for a while, as youth pastors do. And eventually, in a quiet moment, she said, James, I had an abortion years ago. I cannot be used by God. First, I apologized for pounding on her. And I said, is there any action that God cannot forgive? And her honest response was, I'm not sure yet. Those folks are in our church. They need a reminder of the grace of God. And they need to hear God whisper into their soul, I still love you. Come follow me. Let's go walk with them. Let's go stand for children. Let's go redeem what's broken. And let's help walk some families through some very long days to walk with a very, very good God. Thanks for being here. And thanks for engaging the way you're on life. God bless y'all. Thank you for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Please visit us at ERLC.com and subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. Next week, we'll hear from a panel of Christian thinkers as they discuss adoption and foster care.